Hey Kingdom Roots listeners, Chaz here. Before we jumped into our episode today, I wanted to thank all of you who participated in our contest uh, for the free book uh, when we did our episode on the Hum of Angels. Had a great response, and I just wanted to let you know, because I know you're anxious, who won uh, these giveaways. So we've got five different people um, that we've selected for the drawing, and I'll read your name and what you had to say uh, about your favorite line. So David Dominguez is the first one. He said, you just have to develop a knack to see them and hear them. Hashtag Kingdom Roots. Robbie is our other winner. He says, it's central to the Christian faith and Bible's teaching to believe in angels. Hashtag Kingdom Roots. Austin Martin says, angels flutter around with chubby cheeks and chubby fat on their legs and their bellies and their arms. Hashtag Kingdom Roots. Hashtag Out of Context. I like that, Austin. That's great. Darren Bensonson, he says, The image of angels in the Bible is clearly not a chubby cherub. Lastly, Kevin McKissick says, A misconception with angels is every experience humans have with angels, like beings, leads to infallible words we have to believe in. Hashtag Kingdom Roots. Again, thanks to you five who submitted um, those entries and to the many more who also gave us your favorite line. We really appreciate you engaging in that way. And um, yeah, we're, we're really just glad to have you as listeners on the podcast. So stay tuned. Next week, actually, I'll give you a little uh, preview. We're going to be doing a, starting another competition for another book that Scott has coming out, but you'll have to check that out next week. So thanks again for being with us today, and without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight. The conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on our episode, we have a conversation with Scott about Paul as a pastor. Scott, one of the things uh, I've talked with you, heard you working on, is understanding Paul as a pastoral theologian. Uh, give us some insight. What brought this about for you? Uh, what are some of the ways that you've been investigating this and uh, some of the things that you've been learning and talking about with it? Um, yeah, I, I am. Uh, you know, I, over the years, uh, this occurred especially early in my teaching ministry. I would speak at a church. And someone at the church would approach me and ask me if I was interested in pastoring. And I always said no. Uh, I never was convinced at all that uh, I was called to be a pastor, nor uh, did I ever get very interested. But I've, I've, uh, I've always been interested in the church and in pastoring and in uh, what pastors do. And I've become convinced uh, that that Paul can become a powerful paradigm of what a pastor is. And uh, I would not call Paul uh, to, I would not call Paul a pastoral theologian unless I was talking about Paul as a theologian and then said he had a pastor pastor's heart uh, because I think Paul was first and foremost a pastor or an apostle. And uh, and his theology was designed to work his pastoral uh, work his pastoral ideas out. 
So, uh, but I, I've been, I've been kind of nosing my way into this subject, uh, Chaz, and I, and I've come up with some paradigms of what pastors are like. Uh, but let me explain the context of my interest here. I gave, uh, I gave a lecture at Evangelical Seminary in Myerstown, Pennsylvania this fall, and this was the first time I had put this stuff into official form. And then I'm going to give a lecture at Asbury Seminary uh, this spring, and then next summer at Regent in Vancouver, I'm going to teach a class on Paul as pastor, and I'll give some lectures next fall on Pastor Paul. But then next, then the spring of 2018, so I'm thinking way ahead here, I give lectures uh, uh, at the, the Ralph Earl Lectures at the Nazarene Seminary in Kansas City. And uh, they will be published by Baker uh, in, a, in a series that they've been doing. Uh, Beverly Gaventa, whom we interviewed last time, just recently published a book, when in Romans... Uh, and that book was a part of the Ralph Earl lectures as well. So I, it's all I'm all aiming toward those lectures in the in the spring of 2018. But the most complete, the the biggest number of those lectures will be given at Regent next summer. And as a result, I've been kind of nosing my way into how people think about pastors. So I want to suggest that some people uh, talk about pastors, and in that sense, pastoral theology, uh, in terms of pastoral care. And I think one of the major proponents of this today is Eugene Peterson. In so many of his books, and beautifully outlined in his book, The Pastor, a memoir, sees the pastor primarily in terms or in the categories of what we might call uh, a spiritual director. Whereas others kind of move that into a little bit more of the therapeutic and the counselor form. But still, this is one of the major models of a pastor in the church today, and that is a pastor uh, is in charge of pastoral care, uh, which I find to be an expectation of most lay people of their pastor. A second, a second category that I find Scott, before you go on in the second category, um, with that expectation of pastoral care, do you think that was something that uh, was always present in the life of the church, that the, the congregation members, um, and I know the, the role probably is obviously something that developed over time, but do you think that was something that was always present in the expectation of a congregation? I believe that from the very beginning— people in congregations. Now, look, we go back into some murky uh, corners, pretty dark, and what we know about what a local pastor did in a place like uh, Colossae in 54 AD. We, we don't know a whole lot, but we can guess. <clears throat> and I think from the very beginning, people expected their pastors to have some type of pastoral care for them. That was that was expect, expected. That was what pastors do. Uh, so yes, I think that's that's pretty that's that's early, mm -hmm. and I would say this is the original idea of pastoring. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what the word that's what the word pastor means, you know, yeah. to shepherd people. So uh, a second one that has grown 
<clears throat> dramatically in recent discussion is that pastors are leaders. And it is very much the case that uh, this is what Eugene Peterson reacted to. He's constantly, uh, he has constantly harped on this theme that pastors have become leaders, and they're, in some ways they are entrepreneurs, in some way they are leaders of an organization, leaders of an enterprise, uh, and, and you wonder where they get their idea of leadership, and let's face it, a lot of it comes out of the business world that is simply transferred and transformed and baptized into church language and culture. Uh, but the word leader is not what you would call a typical, it's very rare, I think it occurs one time, um, in the New Testament. And clearly the business models that are at work in our world today for pastors are not what is at work in the New Testament. And of course, not everything in the New Testament uh, is relevant to a situation uh, where we uh, we have a more of a Christian culture and we have mega churches and all of a sudden other categories are going to rise to the surface because of the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. But this is a this is a typical one. I think of pastors as leaders, and I and I I think <clears throat> it's the case that most people in churches expect their pastor to be a leader at some level. Mm -hmm. They might not even know what that means, but they. All of a sudden, then the pastor is going to get critiqued and say, you weren't a leader in this situation. And the pastor says, I'm a spiritual director. I'm not a leader. Uh, they're going to go, well, we need a pastor who's a spiritual director and a leader. Mm -hmm. But I think of people like um, Andy Stanley. I think of people like Bill Hybels. Craig Rochelle. Yeah. Craig Rochelle, Rick Warren. Mm -hmm. uh, I know a pastor in um, Pennsylvania named Dave Ashcroft. These people are expert leaders. They're really good at knowing what leadership is about. And, and I think we need to value this and we need to learn from it. A third category, this is the one I grew up in. This is the one I uh, experienced at Trinity when I was a teacher there. Uh, and it's the one that I thought I was teaching my students to become, and that is the, the pastor is a preacher. Now this, this has several models. Some of them see the pastor as more of an evangelist, you know, and, and this is where you get people like Andy Stanley and Rick and Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, who are uh, extraordinary evangelists. Uh, and I and I can right now just hear people saying, yeah, I don't like how they evangelize. Well, deal with it. I'm not I'm not going to deal with that issue at this point. Mm -hmm. But they are evangelistic and they can draw people to their churches and they can get people baptized and they can get people uh, wet in their faith uh, and start moving forward. And I, and I think that this is one model. Another one is that they are great preachers. And uh, Chaz, in your restoration movement um, and the Christian church and the churches of Christ, mm -hmm. as well as in the disciples of Christ, it has been a very big issue for your ministers, your preachers, to be primarily preachers. And I think of, of people like uh, Tom Long, uh, mm -hmm. who are just incredible preachers. And they are. Uh, this has become a model for many young pastors is they want to become a great preacher. They want to sound like uh, 
you know, Tom Long, and they want to be able to preach sermons that draw people in, and every Sunday, people looking forward to hearing their sermons. Yeah, Eugene Lowry, uh, Hayden Robinson, all you know, all the yep. the big wigs to be able to um, do that. And I know that's that's been my experience too. You know, seeing that as uh, I totally agree with you. School I went to, you know, that was the main emphasis, and that was like the thing to do. And um, yeah, and they the result they produced good good preachers, and you know, like you said. I think that's important too. You know, I think uh, my my estimation, this is just a guess, in my experience, and, and I get to speak in mostly pretty good-sized churches, and most of those times those pastors are really good preachers, but my guess is that no more than one out of five pastors are really good preachers. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to think about how, uh, what kind of models we are using and what kind of expectations we're raising. Listen, if you, if you are in a normal Christian and you, you go to church and your pastor, um, your the chances of your pastor living up to the sermons that you can hear online from Andy Stanley mm-hmm. are, 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 are almost zero. Mm-hmm. And as a result, a lot of young pastors get very discouraged because they have this ideal that they're going to turn the world around with their capacity to preach. And, you know, uh, people aren't listening and people aren't impressed and, and their church is not growing. So I think we need to look at that. Okay. Another model along a part of this uh, preaching model, uh, if it starts with the pastor is sort of a, the preacher is kind of an evangelist. Others is that he's sort of a homiletician, that they're just great speakers. And they kind of emphasize, you mentioned Lowry and his emphasis on narrative preaching mm-hmm. Uh, then another one is the is the pastor is an expository preacher, mm-hmm. and that is they they um, they can go through the text and give three points, and they can teach the text. So this pastor sort of becomes the pastor expositor teacher, and I, I find the pastors who are like this are a little bit frustrated uh, because they'd like to be seminary professors, but they don't have PhDs. Some of them get demons thinking that they're going to become a seminary professor. But the point I'm making is, is that this model of preaching is that the primary responsibility of a pastor is to exposit scripture on Sunday morning for about 45 minutes, faithfully going through book by book in the Bible and going in the order of the text and not gathering it up into six weeks of on a theme, but just just going through the text. Well, then there's the the new the newest version of this uh, is coming out of a group of young pastors in the Chicagoland area. They call themselves pastor theologians, and this is a, this is a belief that the pastor is primarily a theologian whose responsibility is to speak into their congregation and into their community. And the emphasis here is on theologian. These ten, these people tend to want to have a lot of time for reading and writing. Uh, they want to write books. They want to write serious books. They want to uh, spend a lot of time uh, reading uh, scholarly literature. And so that that tends to be another model. So so we have the pastor as a past in pastoral care. Um, we have uh, we have the pastor as well in uh, as a leader and then the pastor as a sort of a preacher. Mm-hmm. And then the last model that I see on the on the stage today is the pastor is kind of a missional presence. 
And this is a this is connected to Northern Seminary through David Fitch and Jeff Holsclaw. It's connected to Missio Alliance. And these are pastors who who love the word missional. This is a word that nobody wants to define very well. Uh, but but I should say it this way, is that everybody wants to define it, and it all comes out with different definitions. The, the focus here is a local presence where the pastor and the church and the group uh, embodies the gospel in a local setting for that local setting, and instead of trying to speak uh, the, the word for all people at all times, they're only focused on embodying the gospel in their local community and being an incarnational presence in their community. This is a very important new model. Uh, David Fitch has a new book called Faithful Presence that sort of um, embodies that book. Uh, so these are these are the models that I see. If if people think that there are other ones, I'd like to hear about them. I'm not at this point locked into these as the only ones, but this is what I'm hearing from people. And uh, I want to I shift the conversation slightly to this, and that is this, that lay people expect all these things mm -hmm. from their pastors. They expect their pastor to be a spiritual director, at times a therapist and a counselor. When they have funerals, they expect the pastor to have the right words and to want to do this when they have weddings. They expect the pastor to be totally excited about their daughter and their son. Um, they expect their pastors to be leaders. Um, if they need to raise money, they expect the pastor to raise money. They need their pastors to be entrepreneurs, and they expect these things. They expect their pastors to be great preachers, or at least really good. Uh, they don't want to come to church and be bored. They expect their pastors to know the Bible really well. They expect their pastors to be able to answer all the questions that people are popping up on the internet. They expect their pastors to be able to tell great stories every week in their sermons to illustrate. They expect them to be able to expound the scripture. Uh, they expect these things, and they expect their pastors to be some kind of missional presence in the local community, getting to know what's going on. And uh, I, I don't know that there's ever been a time in history where people expect more of their pastors than they do today. Uh, and I and I feel sorry for pastors. Um, I, I, I hear I hear pastors groaning under the burden of what's going on. So I, I want to speak into that situation. I want to speak into it as a New Testament person. I can't speak into it as a pastor, though I've had sort of some pastoral relations with students over the years. I've done a little bit of pastoral work in my life and and I'm in constant communion with pastors, my pastor Jay Greener and, and Amanda uh, Holm Rosengren. I, I, I talk with these people all the time. I, I teach pastors. I listen to stories by pastors. They bring me back to reality, and I try to take them into the New Testament to see how Paul's working. Yeah, and, you know, and Scott, yeah. I, as a pastor, and I'm a pastor here at Parkview Christian Church in the south suburbs, and um, it, it is. It, you do. Luckily here, you know, we have the opportunity to have a number of other staff members and other um, pastors on staff. But, you know, regardless, I think, of what size, there is a lot of expectation. And um, some of that good, some of that necessary, and some of those very beautiful things that makes me love my job and, you know, makes me excited to wake up 
up and get to do what I get to do. Um, but the, like you've mentioned, the expectations also have consequences. And uh, unfortunately, we, there are there are a lot of stats out there about the burnout rate of pastors and, um, you know, the, the difficulty of it in a lot of ways and the expectation like, you know, you've laid out so clearly um, it is a very real reality. So I, from my perspective, I completely agree with you as well. Well, the thing about it is, uh, you know, it, when you listen to this array, of, let's just say it's an array of expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is an array of expectations. I didn't I don't mean for it to be just that. Uh, these are uh, dimensions of pastoral ministry that to me are anchored in the Bible, anchored in reality, anchored in the wisdom of the church. And yet, uh, it seems like the only legitimate model then is a multi-staff church mm-hmm. where you got someone who can take care of the pastoral care things, and you got someone else who does the preaching, and you got someone else who does the leading. You know, that's why we have executive pastors. And we have, you know, you, all of a sudden you've got 12 people pastoring, and all these things, in a sense, then are covered. But let's face it, how many churches can really... Right. handle multi-staff. Most churches are about 80 people mm-hmm. in the United States. And so I'm concerned about those people because Paul's churches were probably always less than 80 people. Yeah. So what would Paul uh, say? You know, this list, yeah. these four paradigms and models that you've given. Uh, if Paul were to look at this list, what do you think his words of advice and suggestion and maybe correction would be? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think Paul would look at any of these and say, now this this one is the is the most right. Mm-hmm. I think Paul would recognize at some level, uh, at, at a generic level, no matter what happens, all of these these models, all these ideas that I put on the page, I think Paul would say, uh, that's involved. I, I'm concerned that's involved in pastoral ministry. Yes, you've got to be able to teach and preach. And yes, you've got to be able to care for people. Uh, and so I think Paul uh, would would immediately side um, with one of my pastoral friends, Josh Casey, uh, in Iowa. And I think Paul would side with, uh, with my friend Dan Hanlon in Rwanda. And I think Paul would side with people who are in smaller churches like ours, with Jay Greener and Amanda. I think what Paul would say is um, the biggest danger is for you to think that you're on your own. Mm -hmm. The biggest danger is the solo pastor who thinks not only that they have to do all these things all the time and be all things to all people in all ways at all times with all the levels of competence that are required. Paul, Paul ministered in a different way. Paul ministered in a context of friends. I don't know if if you've ever paid attention to uh, the ends and sometimes the beginnings of Paul's letters where he mentions names and and he calls people, one of his favorite terms for his closest friends uh, is is the word co-worker, sunergoi in Greek, sunergos. And here are names of people that Paul uses, Priscilla and Aquila. That's a male and a female, female and a male. Urbanus, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, Clement, Jesus, who is called Justice, Timothy, Philemon, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke. Uh, 
These are all Paul's friends. And I think Paul ministered out of a context of friendship so that in a sense, Paul was a, let's just say this, when he's in Ephesus for a long time, and when he's in Corinth for a pretty long time, and when he's ministering in Rome for a pretty long time, uh, Paul's pastoring small groups. But Paul relied upon the strength of his friends and co-workers who were also involved in ministry. It's not so much a multi-staff ministry as it is a network of friends that give him wisdom, that give him life, that give him support, that give him prayer, that give him ideas. So I have a group of, I have a, a, a group of pastor friends that I know who are in the churches of Christ. A uh, couple names, Josh Graves, Luke Norrisworthy, and Jonathan Stormont. The, these people, now I think there's about 15 of them. They meet every year for a couple days. When they're preaching through a series, uh, they are in communication with other people who are probably preaching through the same series, mm -hmm. who give them ideas, point them to books, point them to stories. And they, they know that they're buoyed up by their friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a world of expectations that we have today, one of the most significant things that pastors need to do is to develop a network of friends. This is easier today in some ways than ever before because of the, of the Internet, mm -hmm. because of Skype, because of Facebook, because of Twitter, because of email. And now that we got mobile phones that we can walk, or we can be playing golf and talking to our pastor friends. Um, I remember the first time I was playing golf with a guy when a guy got a phone call. I thought it was a total sacrilege. <laughs> but I now know why people do this. Yeah. Um, and I would say that that Paul's emphasis upon friendship and um, in my lectures on this, I'm going to develop this idea of friendship in connection with some classical scholars like Aristotle, Cicero, and Seneca and show how Paul reframes the idea of friendship but still borrows very much from that Greek and Roman world because it's the wisdom of the ages on how friendships actually work and how they're formed. I think that because Paul worked in a network of friends, uh, his small church pastoral expectations were shared and diminished and spread and dispersed in such a way that he was able to cope with the struggle of, of the demands upon his life in ministry. And I think that this is uh, one of the most important things that we can learn about ministry is that we should not be doing this on our own. Uh, and a lot of pastors burn out, I think, because they are totally on their own. Uh, and do not develop the network of friends and trust that needs to be developed. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's I, that, that's sort of the direction I'm going. Yeah, I think that's a great direction, and I and I couldn't agree with it more either. Um, you know, for my pastor 
perspective as well. I know I've greatly benefited from you know our cohort at Northern, just being around other students who are get the the ministry world, the ministry life, who are in different contexts, different sizes, facing different problems, but being able to see you know their perspectives, hear what's working, hear what their challenges are, and and to be a support for one another. Um, I know I've benefited from that, and I, and similar to like the guys you mentioned, uh, our senior pastor has a group he likes to call the Stinklings. Um, they got it from the uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's group. I think they called themselves the Inklings, and so that's right. Um, um, just a group to be able to process what you know. What are you writing? What are you preaching about? What are you know? What struggles are you facing? Um, and without that yep. context, man, we're yeah. I think we are sunk, and it wasn't how you know we were created or intended to do this. You know, um, uh, you bring up the northern cohorts, Chaz. Uh, just the other day, one of our master's cohorts, uh, Ben Davis. Uh, writes on the on our Facebook page, mm-hmm. I'm praying for each one yeah, of you I by name. And you know, most of the class, I think everybody read it, mm-hmm. most of the class expressed pretty serious appreciation for yeah. what he was doing there. Yeah. I mean, I think that you go, you know, that's meaningful to me that you're doing that for us. Mm-hmm. And I see this with my D-Min cohort as well. These people have become friends and they're helping out one another. In fact, one of them, uh, was in a, a very difficult ministry situation, and another one rescued him in a sense and found another church for him. Yeah. And uh, this is the sort of thing that I think um, pastoral, I, this is what I think seminaries should inculcate and implement and embody. And I am very proud of Northern's cohorts on how they operate this way and they become friends. They, they're not just cohorts, they are co-workers, they, they see themselves as sunergoi uh, in context. And I'm, I'm really proud of how that's working. And I think that this is going to build a lifetime of friendships. I know one of the D-Min students wrote to me and said, when the class is over, can we still meet once a year? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I know why you want to do that. that. That's the kind of meaningfulness that arises from these uh, cohorts. So, yes. That's uh, great. Yeah, pastor. That, this is the project I'm working on right now. Um, well, I'm actually, when I get time, it, it, it'll be full time this spring uh, when I um, when I have time just to focus on the lectures I'm going to give at Regent. But uh, I hope to get eight to nine major topics worked out this way. Cool. That sounds good. I got one last closing question for you to kind of go back to the expectation and dealing with expectations. The advice about finding a community I think is essential, and I hope you, our listeners, are able to do that in in whatever way um, makes most sense for you. Um, But for a way of leading the people in the congregation, uh, I feel like so much of the expectation kind of comes from the consumer mentality and maybe capitalism in the society that we're a part of, that there's this expectation. I may be given or I come and I expect this this good, this resource. Um, any any suggestions for leading people out of a consumer mentality that may be part of the the factors killing the pastors from the expectation that it creates? Yeah, I think you've been listening to Fitch too much using this idea of <laughs> consumerism. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I expect. I expect people to be consumers in that sense. I don't. I don't know what consumer means in this in the in the sense of a church. I think people come to church should both expect to get and to give. 
And I, I expect that people uh, will want to come and they'll want to hear a good sermon. And I expect that they're going to want to meet friends and have fellowship and pray for one another. And I expect that churches will inculcate and teach in their ministries that people do need to become, they, they need to be more committed to their local church. And they can't just expect to show up on Sunday, listen to a sermon and leave, and to be satisfied with what church is about, or even really whether they're satisfied or not is not the point. The point is more that they need to understand what church is about. All right, so uh, that's a little bit of a rant on my part. Um, but l- let me let me turn this around a little bit. I was one time consulted, one time, and then they never invited me back, uh, about um, uh, people being satisfied with Sunday morning services or the church, uh, the church's ministries. And they asked me my big opinion on this. And I said, you know, I said, I I understand what felt needs are. And I understand that we need to be relevant. And I understand that we do need to be sensitive to people in our context. But I said, "I, I want you to know something, that when I'm teaching from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, in many ways, the last thing on my mind is whether people like what I'm saying and more important to me is whether I'm being faithful to the text of Scripture and teaching and whether I'm being faithful in ministry to what I've been called. Uh, yes, it, it is not an either or. It's not like I'm faithful to the Bible. I could care less what you people think. Mm-hmm. I had some I had some teachers in seminary who almost gave that impression. All right. Uh, and I've seen some pastors who seem to be this way. You know, it's their church. It's not mine. I'm just there fulfilling a role. Uh, those sorts of mentalities, I think, are inappropriate. But at the same time, uh, I do think we need to be faithful to the text in our teaching and in our living, try to embody what the Spirit of God has taught us in Scripture. And at the same time, I think we need to stretch ourselves to try to make ourselves relevant in the sense of trying to show how this gospel that we preach can transform people in our world today and make them even more relevant than they thought the word relevant meant. And sometimes it is it is the ultimate form of irrelevance that makes us the most relevant in our world. So on the consumer mentality, uh, if, if, if I can borrow now from Fitch's regular rant about what consumerism means, uh, and I'm, and I, uh, I think that this is, um, this is a, um, sort of a, a clobber weapon that some people use, and I don't always know exactly what they mean. But let me put it this way: I, I do think there are people who just think that we've created a service for them to come and enjoy, and then they go home. If pastors are doing that, that is a very serious mistake. The most common word for the church in the New Testament is ecclesia, which means a gathered assembly. It doesn't mean an audience mm-hmm. that comes to listen. That's not the word used. It's, it's more of a democratic process of people gathering. And the most common description of the church in the New Testament, other than ecclesia, is koinonia, and that is that it is a fellowship. So it is not primarily a classroom or a school. The church involves teaching. It involves preaching. 
but the church is a fellowship of people who are gathered together to worship God, to fellowship with one another and live life together so that they can grow through the power of the Spirit to become the kind of people God wants them to become. So a church that creates a consumerist mentality has itself to blame for the people who don't want to be involved in a fellowship or who don't want to be involved in a genuine growth of transformation through the power of the Spirit. Yeah. So I think that's great advice. Um, you know, as as pastors, you, you work through and navigate. How, how do you handle that? Or why did this expectation yeah. get created in the first place? So I just hope it's somehow I didn't sound too much like my friend David Fitch. On this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. So uh, any closing thoughts before I end our episode today? Yeah, I, I would encourage uh, pastors uh, today to look at themselves to say, do I have a network of friends? And I would encourage them to cut big patterns into their life where they can share their life with others and be honest and um, talk with one another, help one another to realize that they're not there on their own and that, that, that this is the rooted model in the New Testament of Paul as he traveled through the Roman Empire. He built networks of friends, and I, and I would say in his local churches, there became a network of leaders network of teachers, a network of pastors who were all involved with pastoring people in those churches. Thanks, Scott. Well, we hope this discussion has been helpful for you. And I want to encourage you, as Scott did, to be able to cut those patterns into your life and figure out whatever way you need to to find that context of friends who will help you do ministry as Paul ultimately did ministry. And wanted to let you know, if there's any way um, that I can help with that, Scott or I, um, I'm including my email in the description uh, below for this episode. And uh, we would love for this to be a community as well. You know, we appreciate you engaging with the podcast regularly. Um, and if we can help anyway, just shoot me an email and we'd love to be able to investigate that with you. So thanks again for joining us and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 